let's pray, shall we, before we start uh, our next part in Proverbs. Lord, uh, thank you that you abide in us. Thank you that you are with us every single day, every single minute, and every single second. Lord, thank you that your Holy Spirit is available 24-7, every day of the year, for us to use, to learn about Jesus with the Word of God, so that we may become ever more mature than we have before. That, Lord, every day, every time we pick up the Word, that, Lord, we pray we may mature that little bit more. That we may understand the Word uh, for what it is, a life-giving book. That, Lord, without it, we are truly lost. Without the Bible pointing to Jesus, we would never know Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you inspired men and women to pen, write the Bible. But Lord, we thank you that it is written by you. Thank you, Lord, that it includes experiences of flawed men and women, but with a heart, a desire to serve you. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus covers our sin. That forevermore we have been forgiven. So Lord, we do ask now that you engage our minds, our hearts, our entire body, Lord, in learning more about you, so that we may, on the day that we meet you, be greeted with, thank you, good and faithful servant. Oh Lord, we pray now, uh, go ahead of us in your Holy Spirit, teach us more, pray in your precious name, pray in the name that is above all names, in Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So we're in our Proverbs series. This is part two. Uh, and we've been, uh, this is a somewhat packed sermon. Uh, I think I broke a record last week by going for about an hour. Um, this may seem like it might be an hour. Uh, I'm just going to ask you to bear with me. Uh, if we were to do Proverbs and preach it uh, in the same way that we'd preach any other book, uh, we'd probably be here for about three years. Uh, so we're not going to do that, um, because Proverbs, in my view, does not require a verse-by-verse -verse study. Uh, it might personally do that, and I encourage you to do so. But Proverbs is, is much more of a looking into sets of, of Proverbs, and then seeing what, what does it say uh, about us, what does it say about God, what does it say about how we are meant to live. Uh, and so last week we looked at the beginning of wisdom, and now this is the invitation to wisdom. Uh, Proverbs 1, uh, 8, uh, to chapter 7, verse 27. And what, we're just going to dip into sections and go through them and explain the, the, the summary, I suppose, of each section. Uh, the, the really helpful part about this is that it's known as 10 paternal appeals. And that's what we're looking at today. So there's like a, I wouldn't say a countdown, there's a count up. Uh, and then we'll go through and I'll keep you on track to say which appeal we're on. There were so many to go through. Uh, and you think 10 is, is small, but it's not. Uh, I even missed one yesterday as well, as I was counting through the different uh, verses, checking my notes. Uh, but some overlap, so we're okay. So this is what we're, we're going to do. 
these paternal appeals in this section is from a father to his son or to his sons, uh, an issue and a call to participate in the benefits of a life governed by wisdom. Uh, a young man can choose either the path of uh, life of the Lord or the path of folly. Path of folly entails a rejection purposefully of God's ways. But these paternal appeals in chapters 1 to 8 set out in a poetic theme, uh, the themes that will appear in Proverbs later on. Uh, so it gets us ready for what we're going to read as we go forward. And in keeping with this mandate of a covenant life for God's people, a father passes on to the next generation the truth that the fear of the Lord is the path to wisdom. And the fear of the Lord is absolutely the key to the entire book of Proverbs. And I think this does neatly carry on from the last verse in verse 7 uh, and continues the thing that tells us that the only way to begin in true knowledge is through fear of the Lord. And whilst it is structured as a father writing to his son, as it were, the warnings are no less relevant to all Christians, uh, whatever age you are, and it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. Uh, they apply equally. Uh, the challenge for me, as I said last week, will be what happens when I get into the godly woman section and how am I going to handle that? Uh, because there's a way to handle it, by the way, without it seeming like women have got to reach this impossible target. Uh, there's a way contextually in which we can read this and read it right. Everything, no matter if it speaks to a man or a woman, applies to both. Okay. Uh, women, certainly here, I will correct this now in case anyone thinks this is the case. Women are not meant to be more godly than men. Men and women are, are to be as godly as they can be. Okay? That's how it works. Uh, some pitch this or look at this as if Proverbs is saying, well, women have got to be these perfect things that men can just, hey, we can do what we like. We can just roam around, we can just do what we want. No, 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 no. No, no, no. You need to read more of the Bible men. Okay? Biblical men. Very difficult, very tough to be. Okay, let's get into this though. Let's take our first appeal. Our first appeal is Proverbs 1, 8 to 19. I'll read this out, I'll tell you what it is. Uh, it says, listen, my son, to your father's instructions and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Father and mother, man and woman. They are, they are a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. My son, if sinful men entice you, do not give in to them. If they say, come along with us, let's lie in wait for innocent blood. Let's ambush some harmless soul. Let's swallow them alive like the grave and whole, like those who go down to the pit. We will get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder. Cast lots with us. We will all share the loot. My son, do not go along with them. Do not set foot on their paths, for their feet rush into evil. They are swift to shed blood. How useless to spread a net where every bird can see it. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush only themselves. Such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the life of those who get it. This is the first appeal. What Proverbs here talks about to begin with in this section is a purposeful plan to gain the trust of a Christian in order to exploit them by then taking what they have. What drives this person who wants to bring down the Christian is a love of money. 
a love of plunder, of things. Unfortunately, these people operate both in the Christian church and outside of it. Can't get away from the myriad of channels that broadcast and preach the prosperity and wealth mantra and dress it up as Christianity. This is what they do. They claim that if you would only uh, buy this product or give them all this money to keep us doing God's work, you'll be blessed tenfold. Keep giving more and God will give you even more. But it always seems to be money, doesn't it? Always seems to be money. It's never what I can do, what I can bring. It's give us more money. The health, wealth and prosperity mantra is a cult. And they're an example of the warning given to us here. And here's where Christians need to be very careful. They will befriend us and make us feel on top of the world. Most people do that because they, they want us to feel like we're, we're the best person they've ever met. But their plan, as we saw in these verses, is to profit from our sometimes naivety. Even when giving money to these people does not return a so-called blessing, because they've got into the heads and hearts of the Christian, because they appear to even say the right thing, the Christian will give more money. 1 Timothy 6 verse 10 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's a sad reflection when we look at this verse, that even so that some people, not even people that are just using the Christian faith to gain from it, but actually Christians themselves who have fallen to these ways. It is a scary, scary warning. But here is what happens to those taking advantage of the Christian for sinful gain. The text says they ambush only themselves. They have wandered far from the faith, and instead of taking the path to blessing, they take the road to ruin. So we call them out, and we need this to be a warning to all people who use Christian teaching as a means to make profit and to make wealth through the innocent. We read the Bible as Christians, and what we know is this, people who exploit believers in Christ will be judged. No amount of wealth will protect them from their sinful actions against God's elect. It is disheartening to hear so much that we treasure so much in this place, in this earth, and yet the treasure in the heaven is waiting for us, which does not corrode and does not fade. And it is sad to see that many more are still going down this road of exploiting believers, people even looking for Jesus. So, Christians, we're to take this warning. Matthew 7, verse 21 to 23. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? You've seen this stuff on TV. You know this still happens today, so this is truth. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. The first and probably the main function of Proverbs is to, is to show us to, ex, to, to expose those who are not, who do not have good intentions, who really do not want to believe in Jesus, but actually would like some of whatever comes of it. So we are to be on our guard all the time. And we'll get to that later on as well. We need to be very aware. It's quite easy to be aware of people who are very obvious about trying to gain advantage over us. It's not so easy when people sound like they know what they're talking about. When they use the right words in the right way. But that's where we have to listen well. Read the Bible. Does it show against the word? Does it compare what they're saying? Can I read it in the word? So every week I encourage you, study the Bible. Protect yourselves. Let's look at this second appeal. Proverbs 2, verse 3 to 9. Indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds success in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless, for he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path. We saw this last week, this same uh, saying uh, that uh, you will uh, uh, right, just and fair. Here now we're getting an application. How do you do that? Then you will understand what is right, just and fair. Because what we've done is that we've gone to God and we've said, God, I submit to you. I give to you everything. Help me understand Help me live the way you want me to live so it honours you and blesses you. I think this chapter leads on from the last. and says, so knowing that there are people who want to take advantage of Christians, the way to protect ourselves is to seek diligently after wisdom. The simple uh, premise here, and it does apply to the young, but applies to every Christian, don't rush in. Don't rush in just because something sounds good. The heart must be applied to understanding. It won't happen by accident. You can't get a Bible, let the Bible fall open and say, this is what God wants to teach me. We have to study the word. Accidentally, it will not happen. It will not fall into our heads as it is with wisdom. This wisdom, discernment and understanding must be sought after. As if it says it was silver and hidden treasure. Since when, when was the last time anyone in this room stumbled upon hidden treasure by accident? I can't even remember the last time I found a five pound note on the floor. I can't remember the last time I found some money on the floor. I think the last time I did, someone, it was a trick. 
and they glued it to the floor. And then they come outside laughing when I went to pick it up. You don't find things by accident on the whole. Probably a good example of people trying to trick us, right? Maybe that was a good lesson for me. There was a bit of greed there. It was many years ago. Good lesson about greed, isn't it? It's a bit of money. Ha ha, got you. Solomon, though, who's the, uh, we, we suppose is the author, he definitely did speak about wisdom, made many speeches, people come to see him from far and wide. Solomon established the principle that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and of wisdom. Here he teaches us that without the effort to seek out wisdom, we will lack in our fear of the Lord and knowledge of God. So we must take the good path to find this wisdom and learn from it. And what these good paths refer to, every good path, is the idea that, uh, of something like cart tracks. The idea being is that we will go through life seeking wisdom and we make tracks or paths in the ground. Those tracks and paths would harden. These tracks become the path by which others will also follow. I don't know if you've ever seen it. If you've ever gone to a, uh, an open park, a place where they've just got open greenery, open grass, what you'll find is that eventually, uh, where there's no path, you'll notice that there's paths appearing, where there's no grass anymore. Have you seen that before? You've seen where people would make common journeys across a patch of grass. And over the years and time, they would wear this path into the ground. Got one near us. People have worn it into the ground, through the grass. So it's saying here. What will happen is you'll learn to take that same path. You'll keep treading the same path and learn from it. You won't wander from that path. You won't need to go on the green. You won't need to take a different path because you've already learned where it is. You've already made that way to go. So the tracks become the path by which others will also follow. They teach us to make good habits in our Christian walk, primarily making a habit of seeking wisdom and growing in the Lord. So to the third appeal. This is the third and fourth appeal, rather. Um, Proverbs 3, verse, I've got Proverbs 3, verse 1 to 12 for this. Uh, th this is a long chapter, but 1 to 12 covers pretty much uh, most of the points here. Uh, as you go on, you'll notice there is a repetition uh, of, even within the same chapter, of themes that they're talking about. So 1 to 12 is probably about right in terms of understanding the full context of this chapter. My son, do not forget my teaching. Keep my commands in your heart, for they prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. This is mentioned a lot in Proverbs. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favour and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him. He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Honour the Lord 
with your wealth, with the uh, first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. This appeal provides instruction on how to act in wisdom and teaches that obeying the instruction results in blessing. It also encourages the one who finds wisdom to guard it, keep it, hold on to it, to know that the Lord sustains and secures the path of the righteous. Verses 3 and 4 are a call to safeguarding this life with God. Verses 5 to 8 teach the necessity of humility. That's firmly anchored in trusting in the Lord. Verses 9 to 10 guide the reader to acknowledge in practical ways that everything comes from God's hands. It may not be that your barn goes to overflowing. It may be that you don't even have a barn because that's not the point. The point here is that when God says this will happen, it's not necessarily that they will actually happen. It's just saying that God can do anything he desires to do. If you follow him, he will do what is right for you. He will do what is right to keep you on the path. That's a blessing. The blessing is to keep you in his fold. Verses 11 to 12 are a call to submit to God's discipline. I think here is a classic set of verses that can and most likely are taken out of context by those wishing to gain monetarily from God's word. They will at least probably read up to verse 4 and then stop short of the rest. I talk about this a number of times because I think it's important. I think we need to be warning people, warning, warning Christians about the dangers of seeking treasures in this life to the degree that God is no longer the one we seek, but just the gifts that he gives. Here is where we need to know how prosperity, health and wealth in the correct context according to the Christian life uh, is dangerous. It is entirely possible that here is what happens to those taking advantage of the Christian, sorry, that's wrong. It's entirely possible, sorry, I'm reading it all backwards. It's entirely possible that God will give success. He will give health. He will give prosperity. I'm not saying he won't. I'm saying, but that's not what we're looking for. The focus is on worshipping and glorifying our God. The focus is on making disciples. The focus is on sharing the gospel. If I gain some form of wealth or prosperity or health, it is a byproduct of what my mission is, which is to make disciples, which is to share the gospel. Here is what the prosperity teachers will not tell you. To have these things will require a submission to him. A desire to know and follow his ways and not our own. To fear the Lord and to accept the lifelong lesson of discipline and rebuke in order to stay humble and focused on God. 
Whatever is given must honour God in our giving away of it. Especially important is to give in generosity to God the first fruits, the best of what he has given us. When we truly trust him, we can honour him with generosity that realises he is the great provider. And God has inexhaustible resources. I have this quote here uh, from Ross, uh, a theologian. He says, the third piece of advice is to give back to God some of one's wealth as a sacrifice in recognition that God gave it. God allows you to have stuff. God allows you to have things. God allows us to have money. And, and there's, not, there's nothing wrong with that. But what do you worship? It's really easy to fall into worshipping things that seemingly make your life better. But they're byproducts of what God does when we follow him, when we focus on him. And when he gives us those things, we say, actually, yeah, thank you, Lord, but the Lord's still much more important than this thing. The Lord's still much more important than the money that I have. The principle of first fruits means that we give to God in active anticipation that he'll provide more, whatever that is. This is not, we're not trying to run a Ponzi scheme, okay? We're not trying to put in money and one day we're going to get millions out of it. We're not doing that. Whatever that give back is from God, thank you, Lord. Whatever it is, thank you, Lord. We honour him by thinking, I can give you the first and the best because I know you can and will give much more. That is where we need to be. And to this end, we're told to guard that wisdom, which you gain through understanding and receiving wisdom. It says, my son, do not let wisdom and understanding out of your sight. Preserve sound judgment and discretion. We, we learned about that last week about discretion of the young. They will be life for you, an ornament to grace your neck. Then you will go on your way in safety and your foot will not stumble. Do these things and this will happen. Not promises, practical ways to live to honour God. Let's look at the fifth appeal. This might be both actually. I'm trying to think if I put I put another two together, but let's go with this. The fifth appeal. Check my notes. Yeah, fifth appeal is this. Uh, Proverbs 4, 1 to 9. Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention. Gain understanding. Keeps doing this. Listen. Isn't it, isn't it so appropriate that every time we start with this, there's constant, listen, I'm going to tell you something. Next chapter. Listen, I'm going to tell you. How often have you said that to your kids? How often have you said it to the young? Listen. Ah, listen. Same thing. We're the same all the way through history. As young people, we struggle to listen. As we grow older, we sort of get better. Sometimes we, we don't listen. Sometimes we're a little bit reckless. But on the whole, as you grow, you learn more about God. You learn how to be more mature. And so you want to pass that down to your children. 
listen. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. For I too was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. Then he taught me and he said to me, take hold of my words with all your heart, keep my commands, and you will live. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Though it costs you all you have, get understanding. Cherish her and she will exalt you, embrace her and she will honour you. She will give you a garland to grace your head and present you with a glorious crown. Thank you, Lord. The appeal is the importance of passing down to each generation the nature of a life lived honouring God. In Proverbs 4, 1-9, the father, after giving an opening encouragement, cites the appeal that his own father made to him. The son is therefore hearing wisdom from other generations. Then we're told, at any cost, at any cost, get wisdom. I think this brings balance to what we're seeing here. God never leaves us unsure about his word. So when we're trying to understand what is, what is prosperity that he's promising, what is, what is this health that he's promising, this here brings balance about what is practical blessing. Yes, God can give us health and wealth, but at no time should that ever be at the cost of gaining wisdom. Even if we lose everything, we should seek more so to gain wisdom and knowledge to continually live rightly in the Lord. Because ultimately we know those things are for now, not forever. So we find balance in Scripture. We find that God can bless us incredibly through practical means. He says, whatever you do, whatever you do, seek wisdom above everything. Whatever you get, whatever blessing you receive, let wisdom be above all else. Keep seeking God. Philippians 3, verse 7 to 9 says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. We know that at some point, uh, Paul had everything. Paul had nothing. Above all else, he says, for the sake of Christ. As Paul passed down in a letter to the Christians here in Philippians, so we live our life upright to God today. We too pass down to those that come after us. We need to live rightly in the sight of the Lord and help teach those who are still young in the faith to come through well for God in their lives. 
Even so, just as Paul was well taught in the Old Testament and passionately sought the Lord later in his life, he himself continued to learn, even as wise as he was. We must, for each other, build each other up in the ways of the Lord, continually through the word of the Lord, in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is an encouragement that we must continually seek. Six appeal, Proverbs 4, 10 to 19. See how difficult this is. We're just trying to dip into different sections of these Proverbs, finding what is being said without missing what God wants to show us today. Listen, my son, accept what I say, and the years of your life will be many. I instruct you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way. For they cannot rest until they do evil. They are robbed of sleep till they make someone stumble. They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. The path of righteous is of the righteous like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. What we see here is that it asserts that everyone must make a choice between the way of wisdom and the way of folly. More so that this appeal tells us that more about is the path of evil, of the path of folly. Those who are intentionally setting out to go after those who seek after God. Here the warning is, don't underestimate those who travel this road of folly. It says that so intent are they on the destruction of the Christian, that it will eat them up and become their life's work to make the Christian stumble. It says they don't sleep. It says they are utterly bent by it. And I think there's a parallel here in this section. I think actually what, we re what it reveals in another verse is what makes them stumble. They don't know what makes them stumble. The Bible tells us what makes them stumble. It's 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who have been saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made, the, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. What's the stumbling block? A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. That's the stumbling block. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Why are they so intent on the Christian stumbling? Because God frustrates them. God annoys them. God agitates them. 
He lets the foolish choose the path they have chosen. Their stumbling block is that we preach Christ crucified. Not intelligent arguments, not great debaters. Christ crucified. Some people, they will get incredibly angry. There are well-known atheists in this world who get red-faced when good theologians challenge them on the existence of God. I have to say, I don't know why they get so angry. I'm troubled by how angry they get. And yet God says, right here, don't sleep. Filled with a determination that you don't believe in God. Above all human arguments and wisdom is the immovable fact that Christ was crucified for all sin, for all time, no matter how people dress it up uh, in their own human wisdom as intelligent and right. But even if there was the foolishness of God, this is a great section, a great last verse here. Let me explain this. For even if there was foolishness, if there was foolishness of God, if God was foolish, he would still be wiser. So he's doing this. He's saying, no matter if God, if that was a thing, if that existed, which it doesn't, but if God was foolish, he would still be wiser than them. If there was such a thing called weakness, that God was weak, he would still be stronger than them. It's a little jab. You have no power over this God whatsoever. You can say all the things you like. You can disbelieve all you want. I like to think that behind those anger and that resentment, I think is fear. I think people are scared of what death is. I think people are scared of what comes after. And they want to they stand there and justify their self-righteousness because you know what? For this time at least, it makes them feel better. And yet we don't even have to travel that road. I can trust in God and say, thank you, Lord. When I leave this place, I'm going to meet him. I struggle to understand why people are so agitated and angry when we talk about the biblical God. But let's move on. The seventh appeal. Proverbs 4, 22, 27. My son, pay attention to what I say. Here it is again. Listen. Hey, stop doing that. Come here. Listen. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they uh, are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the path for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. This holds the seventh appeal. The emphasis here is on safeguarding ourselves on the path of wisdom. Staying on course involves disciplining the heart, disciplining the tongue, the eyes, and the feet. This is actually not primarily about how you appear to others, by the way. 
Because we can all pretend that we're good, upright Christians on the outside. Rather, instead of a cosmetic change in appearance, it's a change to the source that these things speak from, the heart. Mark 7, 21-23, for it is with, from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside of the defile a person. Isn't that amazing? The Bible backs itself up later on. All those many moons ago when Proverbs was written and we had now Matthew following up. I love how the Bible is so consistent that people even try to make up inconsistencies. And yet with a little bit of study we can find that it's consistent all the way through. But when the heart is compromised then the input and output devices of the human person reveal it. The tongue amplifies, it speaks, the eyes look to corrupt things, and the feet step into and walk down the wrong path. But it all comes from the heart. Where is our heart focused on? We're shown we need to safeguard this because we can be easily led at times. And Ephesians 6 again speaks into this. Therefore put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. Stand when you've been standing. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. What guards the most vulnerable source of ourselves that corrupts everything else? What guards it? What stops things from getting into this heart that is so precious and fragile and vulnerable? The breastplate of righteousness. Jesus. He protects our heart. So we follow the path of God and his way found in the righteousness of Jesus. So we remain protected from the evil ways and the road to ruin. Trust in his righteousness, not our own. We'd be glad to hear that the last three are grouped together. 8th, ninth, and 10th appeal. Proverbs 5, half of Proverbs 6, and Proverbs 7. All of uh, Proverbs 5 and some of 6 and all of 7 concern matters of sexual morality and adultery. The message of these passages is given by illustrating the allure of an immoral woman and the consequences of following her into sin. But the wise person the passages tell us is able to adapt to the counsel in, inherent in illustrating whatever applicable to his, his or her life. Whatever we read here, we can, we can get from and say, how do I avoid these traps? How do I avoid these temptations? So we're just going to focus on a few verses. It's our last uh, part. Proverbs 5, uh, verse 3 to 6. For the lips of the adults from a drip honey of speech is smoother than oil, but in it is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Where have you heard that before? Double-edged sword. Uh, that's a test for you. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. 
her past wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. What is Solomon saying? Solomon's phrasing is poetic. It's, it's, it's powerful. The figures of lips and the mouth refer to the words of an immoral woman that she may use in her enticements and to her alluring, alluring kisses. But this speaks to the great need for men and women to guard their speech and communication with the opposite sex. And we can see that obviously Solomon has focused on the immoral woman. But it wasn't because he thought that men are perfectly morally right. He didn't think these women. He's, he's using a way to describe a, a, a temptation that you may experience. Now he's used the example of a alluring woman, but no human being, no matter whether you're a man or woman, is, can fully resist this temptation. So we need Jesus. And this temptation comes in all sorts of forms in this day and age. Solomon focused on the immoral woman because he wrote to his son. Who knew there was a practical reason why he talked about a woman? He's writing to his son. Context, church. Just have to read context. You can defend these silly arguments about uh, sexism and all this stuff because there's context in the Bible. Who knew? But he's writing to his son. And for him, he sensed this moral danger for him. He identified for his son, you're weak in this area. Hey, we may even have a family that's like this, right? We have generations here that may have had this same problem. So he's warning his son, watch out. In other circumstances, he might have warned against an immoral man. And so the, these principles of seduction can apply freely to women or men. The warning is that the initial attraction to this adulterer seemingly looks pleasant and appealing. But following this adulterer only leads to death. The adulterer's only aim is to bring down others with them. In the same way that the Christian must seek wisdom at any cost, so the adulterer at the opposite end of the scale will seek the downfall of the one they are attracting at any cost. They're going down, you're coming down with me. Why is there people that on either side break up families? Because first there's this, there's this delusional view we have that somehow there's some other better thing. And what happens when we are tempted and take on that temptation? Destruction of the family. This is why when I talk about this, it is not just about women. It is also about men. We are all tempted by this particular aspect to some degree or another. So how do we get around this? How do we solve this problem? What's God done so that we're not left with this kind of like, oh, what do I do when I'm... Okay, God's given us the answer. Isn't that great? At 15 to 23 of Proverbs 5, Drink water from your own cistern, 
running water from your own well. Stay with your own wife. Stay with your own husband. Stay with your own family. Simple, right? Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord and he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sins hold them fast. For the lack of discipline they will die, led astray by their own great folly. While this is about the adulterer, this is also about teaching us about the folly of foolishness. Their ways and their methods. Sin in this life is at the very core uh, appealing. It's why it's called sin. It's a very obvious thing we do as Christians. We say, it's why sin is, is appealing. It's why it's called sin. It's why we're warned about it. Because on the surface, it seems like something we're attracted to. And we are. Broken people. It appeals to our brokenness. Speaks to our self-righteousness. We justify things in our head, don't we? So we say, well, it's okay. I can, I, can, I can find a way to justify this. To still be righteous somehow. And then what happens after those things happen? We find excuses, don't we? We try and find ways to justify our actions. Not my fault. It just happened. It meant nothing. How many times have you heard that? It meant nothing. God tells us here that to be with the one you are married to be it a, to a woman, a man to a woman, a woman to a man, the principle is that man or woman must be faithful and true. Why? Why must it be faithful and true? Because to let ourselves be drawn to the adulterer, it's not only adultery, in the technical sense, biblical, in the sense of what we've been taught not to do, but even worse, we'll be led astray as they have been. For if we are taken by this temporary sinful attraction, we also have lost our discipline and we'll also die. If we succumb to it, uh, this chapter actually tells us what our response is after we've acknowledged our sinful actions. There is dispute on these verses, by the way. I'll tell you after this, and I'll tell you why there's a dispute. Proverbs 5, 11 to 14, at the end of your life you will groan when your flesh and body are spent you will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors. And I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. Two things quickly. Uh, people either think this is a repentance, or people either think this is just someone feeling sorry for themselves. I tend to go with the latter. I'll tell you why that is. I don't see any mention here of repentance. Repentance is asking for forgiveness and, and, and not moaning because it starts with groaning. I moan. Oh, how I respond. I don't think it's regret. I think people are groaning here. 
But when we see how empty the promises of sin are and how great the price of these sins is, deep sorrow and regret is a logical response. People carry that for the rest of their lives. Many men and women fallen into this snare of sexual immorality, I think have wondered, how did I ever end up here? How could I be so foolish? How could I give up so much for what amounted to so little? And yet, as we come to the end here, this has such a wider application when it comes to our relationship with God. Remember, marriage is a representation of the relationship that God has uh, with, between the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Is an, an example of how we, we can get an idea about how that relationship works. We don't do it perfectly and anywhere near how God does it. But God's given us that so we can understand how that works. So here's what we need to do. Here's the wider application. We need to be watchful and careful that nothing comes between us and God. We need to be careful that we're not spiritually adulterous and forsaking God for worldly things. I'm not saying don't have worldly things. I'm not talking about some sort of communism, socialism. I'm just saying, don't let that be the thing you worship. You can have things. God allows you to have things. Just don't worship them. When you feel that way, maybe review. Maybe when that becomes the centre of your life, hmm, that's not healthy in my relationship with God. That's hampering me. That's, that's taking me away. James 4, verse 4, says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, you know, when chooses to be a friend of the world, becomes an enemy of God. Chooses. You have a choice. How do you know when you've been adulterous? And this is talking more of a, against God. Something will tell you it in your heart. Something will eat in your brain about how this doesn't feel right. The Holy Spirit, that is. It's the Holy Spirit telling you something, giving you a nudge and saying, are you sure? Sure this is right? Is this honouring God? We are warned in Proverbs 5, why even starting on this road to destruction uh, will lead to destruction. We're told that to even begin on it, you're going you're gonna to end up in being destroyed by it. But here is the good news, and you always end with good news, right? As hard this might be to hear. Our God is an amazingly gracious God. When you think of the things he's just pointed out to us of who we are, I don't deserve this God. I don't deserve this amazing God. This is the stuff I can do. This is the evil that I can do. Because of Jesus, all is not lost. Even the ones who reject him can still come to choose him. There's a way back. But these paths that lead us back to God require discipline. They require fortitude that can only be gained when the fear of the Lord is reinstated in our lives. When we rediscover where we might have wandered and said, Oh Lord, I took your your power for granted. I've just understood what fear is again. 
Remember, there is an element of fear here, that certainly for the Christian, and it's not the whole story. But we know that if we wander from the Lord and we, we, we don't choose him anymore, we're not going with him, we're, we're going to the other place, we're going to hell, away from him. That's the power, that's the fear, but it's not all of it. Because the other side of that is in awe of a God that saved us when we didn't deserve it. You didn't, we didn't deserve any of it. That's his amazing power. So we must continue to seek repentance in these matters, but also to follow up on it in action, to learn to love discipline. That's a whole life lesson, by the way. Learn to love discipline. To embrace correction. How many of you hate it when someone corrects you? And they're right. I'm not saying people that are wrong. I'm saying people that are right. Tell you what, for a minute, sometimes, gets me right here. Right. You're right, and I don't want to say you're right. And walk away. <laughs> but embrace. Embrace correction. And then submit to the Lord in fear and reverence. That's when we receive instruction. This is the main driver of Proverbs. Love the way to blessing, shun the road to ruin. Purposeful. Let me leave you with these verses that are incredibly helpful. Hebrews 12, 4 to 11. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That's because you're not Jesus. It's because you can't, you can't do that, right? Comparison. You can't do it. Jesus did it. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father, addresses his son? Where did he get that from? Oh, I wonder where that was. Did we learn about it a minute ago? Yes, we did. It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children for what children are not disciplined by their father. If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. When you're considering the struggle to allow God to discipline you, what is the reward to share in his holiness? When you think about the reward, the disciplining is nothing. We think... But I can share in his holiness if I'm just going to go through this, let God discipline me in this particular matter at this particular time. Because it's not discipline for nothing, it's discipline to share in his holiness. Verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. The reward is greater than the discipline. 
mean, it's already greater, right? Because if you accept Jesus into your life, you're going to live forever. And you're going to be with him forever. So the path, whilst hard, will actually lead to a reward that is permanent. Not a road that is worldly and temporary. Not one where we get some gifts and get some nice things. But this gift, to have everlasting life in the presence of our Lord and Saviour forever and ever. Then everything pales into insignificance. One day, I want to be up there with him. I don't know what room I'm going to be in. I don't know what chair I'm going to sit in. Don't matter. I'm going to be with him. And by the way, there's no limit to how many people go up there. In case you thought there was, and you heard that other thing that tells you, the other people that tell you there's a limit, there's no limit. Everyone is welcome into the Lord's house. Everyone is welcome who professes Jesus and says, you're my Lord, you're coming in. It's not full up, not crowded room. Who knows what's going to be up there? But for now, because of that promise, we do what God wants us to do. We honour him, share the gospel, get as many people to know Jesus, to give him the opportunity. So live upright and honourably in the eyes of the Lord. Let us pray and let's worship uh, as we close our service. Lord, thank you that you have given us Jesus. How often can we say, how often is enough to thank you for Jesus? Uh, there isn't. There isn't enough. There isn't enough times to say, Lord, thank you so much for what you have done. Lord, we pray that you give us the strength to bear under discipline when it is required. Lord, we want to be a people that is open to your teaching, open to your correction, to your rebuke, because we want to be God-honouring people. Lord, help us to be real, show that we were broken people, and through Jesus Christ we have been saved, not through ourselves, not because we were good at something, but because we simply said, Lord, I've had enough of this broken life. I'm a terrible person and I need Jesus. Oh Lord, what a simple thing to do in comparison to the gift of eternal life through salvation. We praise you, Lord, now we're going to give glory to you, Lord. Say thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for salvation. And we await the day that you will return. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.